Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, John chapter 10. I'll begin reading at verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter, page 1,236, 1,236 in the Pew Bible. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. For you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one who is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, How many good works have I shown you from my Father? For which of those do you stone me? And the Jews answered, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered and said to them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are God's? If he who called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him. But... He escaped out of their hand, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, we find Jesus at the Feast of Dedication. If you're wondering, where did you read about that in the Old Testament? Uh, don't remember such a feast? Well, don't worry, it's not in the Old Testament. It's not something prescribed in Mosaic legislation. It's not one of the God-given feasts by which Israel was to celebrate and worship God throughout the year. This feast has its origin in 167 B.C., when the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem, uh, captured Jerusalem and surrounding territory, and he defiled the temple by tearing down the altar of God and in its place erecting an altar to a pagan god, what uh, Daniel and later Jesus referred to as the abomination that causes desolation. Well, uh, this gave rise to a resistance movement uh, 
Some believe it's the first historical evidence of guerrilla warfare, but the Jews rallied to get rid of this Syrian usurper, and under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, they did get rid of the Syrian presence in Jerusalem, and they rededicated the temple. They cleansed the temple and rededicated it in 167 B.C., and they had an eight-day ceremony to rededicate the temple. It was called the Feast of Dedication, also the Feast of Lights, and you may know it as Hanukkah. And John indeed tells us that this is in the month of December, which is when Jews still today celebrate Hanukkah in remembrance of the warfare that threw away, threw out a Syrian usurper, a man who defiled Israel and the temple and enabled the Jews to reestablish their independence for a short time, sadly. But anyway, that's what this feast is all about. So Jesus is not there to fulfill all righteousness. He did a lot of things to fulfill all righteousness. He obeyed all the commands, every feast that Moses required uh, Jewish males to go to, he went to, to fulfill all righteousness. But he's not there for that reason. He's there because the people are there. And he has a mission among the people. John tells us it's winter, and he tells us uh, he's in Solomon's colonnade. Uh, He's not out uh, in the open because it's winter. He's uh, in a sheltered place to provide some shelter from the, the cold. Solomon's colonnade is mentioned twice in the book of Acts. Early on in Acts, that's where the Christians also gathered before the Jewish leadership began to persecute them and drive them away. Now the drama of this passage revolves around Jesus' answer to the question of the Jews, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now you can read that question uh, two ways. You might be tempted to read it this way, that they really want to know if Jesus is the Christ, because if he is the Christ, they, they want to worship him. They want to serve him. They want to receive him as the Christ of God. So tell us plainly so that we can worship you in an unrestricted way. Don't leave us in doubt. Tell us, because we really want uh, to find God's Christ. That's one way to read the question, but I think if you read it that way, you would be in error. Uh, the other way to read it is uh, these people have already decided that Jesus is not the Christ, and they want him to say that he is so that they have clear evidence of blasphemy, which they can then charge him with and put him to death. And the reason I think that that's the, the right answer is because it's the Jews who are asking this question. Now, a careful reading of John's Gospel shows that John sometimes talks about the crowd and at other times talks about the Jews. And in the majority of instances where he talks about the Jews, he's talking about those who very early on, as early as John chapter 5, determined that Jesus had to be put to death. The Jews are the Jewish leadership. The crowds are the also Jewish, of course, But they're the people who more sat on the fence and could be swayed a little bit this way, a little bit that way uh, from time to time. They were a bit more open-minded. But uh, uh, the Jews are the determined enemies 
of Jesus. And because it's the Jews asking and not the crowd that's asking, therefore we can uh, know. And also because uh, at the end of this chapter, they're ready to stone him. Even though he hasn't answered directly their question, they, they are still ready to stone him. So you know these people are not uh, eager to put their faith in Jesus, but looking for an excuse to be able to get rid of him. Now we have to ask ourselves, why would they have to ask this kind of question? Hasn't Jesus been telling people that he is the Christ? Well, again, if we look at the Scriptures carefully, we see that in a number of instances, Jesus was quite open and clear about it. Uh, For example, in John chapter 4, the uh, uh, Samaritan woman uh, says to uh, Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. He's saying, I am the Christ. It's very clear, it's very plain that he says to this um, uh, woman that he is the Christ. Not in John's Gospel, but in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not the Christ. In fact, he goes on to say, uh, to confirm it in the, in the strongest possible terms, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. It's God who has taught you that I am the Christ. And so again, he in very clear terms reveals that he is the Christ. Not with regard to being the Christ, but also with regard to being divine. He was clear in some instances. We saw in the previous chapter the man born blind after he had been canceled by the Jews. We would use modern terminology after he had been cast out of the synagogue. He came to Jesus and Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of God? And uh, the man says, who is he? And Jesus says, uh, you're talking to him. And the man bowed down and worshipped Jesus. And so, again, Jesus is clear. In that instance, it wasn't the Christ that he was clear about, but it was clear about his divinity uh, that he was revealing there. And uh, very clear in these contexts. But when Jesus spoke to the crowds, he wasn't as clear. He wasn't as clear because, and I'm sure you've heard this before and so I won't belabor it, the term Christ carried all kinds of baggage that wasn't true. The expectation of the people was for another Judas the Hammer. They wanted somebody to be a political liberator. That's what they wanted in a Christ. Uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000, they wanted to put him on a white steed and have him lead them in as an army against the Romans to cast out the Romans the way Judas Maccabeus had cast out the Syrians. Well, because they had all these wrong ideas associated with the word Christ or Messiah, Jesus avoided the term when he spoke to the crowds in private contexts with people who he knew uh, the Spirit was at work to bring them to faith, he was quite clear. And we can read the, the clear passages and we can know as well that he was quite clear that he was the Christ. But he also did not leave the crowds without some revelation about the fact that he was the Christ. Although he didn't use the term, 
he never he nevertheless made clear to them that he is the Christ of the scriptures the Christ of prophecy for example when uh, John the Baptist was in prison he sent by his followers the question are you the coming one which is a technical phrase for the Christ the Messiah are you the coming one And Jesus said, go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Now there's six things there. Uh, The lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, and the poor. Uh, And if you look at those six things and those six phrases, and you get out uh, a concordance or a... An Old Testament, uh, your computer program and whatnot, and plug in those words, you'll find out that all of those things were prophesied by Isaiah and by Ezekiel and others about the Messiah. The Messiah, when he comes, he's going to do these things. And Jesus was doing these things. And if they'd known the Scriptures, and many of them did know the Scriptures and knew the prophecies, they could see, look, he's doing what the Christ is supposed to do. Ezekiel had said that when the Christ comes, he will shepherd my people Israel. And in this 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus stands up and says to the crowds, I am the good shepherd. You know, so he's, he's using Christological terminology without using the word Christ to refer to himself and to show that he indeed is the one who fulfills the prophecies. He's trying to direct their attention back to the prophecies and not to their erroneous expectations as to what a Christ would do. And that's why he can say in this passage, the works that I do bear witness to me. Are you the Christ? Look at my works. My works bear witness to me of who I am. And if you look at my works, you will see that they are the works of the Christ. And so I haven't left you in doubt. You have no excuse for not believing. John wrote the Gospel so that we could come to faith in Jesus as the Christ and by believing have life in His name. Here he shows us that Christ has given sufficient evidence, not just to a select few. He has given sufficient evidence to the masses as well. He has revealed to everyone who he is. We cannot claim that there's not enough information to answer the basic questions about whether Jesus is the one sent from God to be the Savior of the world. Anyone who is willing to look at the Bible and read what is there will find more than enough evidence to believe. So you are encouraged also to look at the Scriptures, to compare the Scriptures, to compare the the works of Jesus with what the prophets said that the Savior would do and, and see if those prophets hundreds of years before Christ came into the world got it right. And when you see that they got it right... And you can know that they spoke from God. We read at the end of this passage that, you know, John the Baptist never performed any miracles. But we know that he was telling the truth because everything he said about Jesus is true. You know, and so if the prophets of the Old Testament have said this is what's going to happen and then it happens, you know that it's true and that Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of those prophecies. 
Well, if Jesus has given both discreet, clear revelation to select individuals and more general revelation that He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, why don't people believe in Him? Well, He says something here that uh, may shock you. He says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not My sheep. You're not My sheep. Now, of course, this refers to the sovereignty of God in salvation. He chooses from among fallen mankind uh, who will be saved. And whenever we talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation, there are people who want to raise their hand and say, I object. That's not fair. Why did God save some and not everybody? And the answer again is that because he's not a lifeguard, he's a judge. A lifeguard's job is to help anybody and everybody who gets in trouble. A judge is one who has to administer justice. And we don't want a judge who ignores justice and says, oh, well, let, 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 let the guilty go free and uh, let bygones be bygones, you know. Uh, a judge that uh, does that, we say he's taking money under the table. That's why he's uh, uh, so easy on, on the guilty. We expect that the guilty to get what they deserve. And, and we are all guilty before God. That God saves anyone uh, is something that we ought to marvel at. And then when we see how He saves us, we ought to be blown away because the way He saves us is that He takes off His judge's robes and puts on our nature and comes and and takes our punishment upon Himself. He lives the life that that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. He takes our place so that we might be clothed with His perfect righteousness and satisfaction and be counted righteous in the sight of God through faith in Him. What an amazing God that He has mercy upon sinners. He's not obligated to do that. He's not obligated to show mercy, but He shows mercy in such a way as to not abrogate justice. He upholds justice even while He shows mercy because the sins are still paid for, not by us, but by a substitute in our place. Thus saying, you are not my sheep, does not excuse them. God created us as morally responsible creatures, and if we sin against Him, we are responsible for that and cannot complain of injustice when we are held accountable for our guilt. Saying you are not my sheep means you are are among those who refuse to believe, even though the evidence has been manifested right before your eyes, because you refuse to believe, you are going to be punished for your sins. That's why you are not my sheep. Saying you are not my sheep does not exclude an appeal to them yet to believe that it's, it's still not too late. In verse 38 that, uh, that we'll look at uh, in more detail next uh, week, he, he appeals to them. He says, believe the works. Believe the works that you may know and understand. He's still reaching out to these who are not His sheep, that they may become His sheep through faith. And so uh, Christ commands uh, that uh, everyone to repent and believe, not just uh, those whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world. He calls everyone to believe in Him. And today He wants the Gospel to be preached to everyone and He wants everyone to be called to repentance and faith in Him. He continues to treat you as a morally responsible agent because that is what you are. 
But there are others who do believe in him. And he says why that is. It's because they hear, he knows them, and he hear, they hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, key there is the fact that he knows them. It's not, that, first of all, that we know him, but that he knows us. He has chosen us out of the fallen human race, not because of any good gifts in us, not because we are better than others. He knows us. He loves us. That's what knowing means. He loves us and he calls us. We can turn it around the way John does in his, in his epistles and say we love him because he first loved us. Christ gives them eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It's, it's mercy. It's giving someone not what they deserve, but the opposite of what they deserve. What we deserve is punishment. Previously in John's Gospel, he referred to eternal light under the figure of uh, the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life, the life full of joy. Now he calls it eternal life to to emphasize its indestructible nature. It is a life that cannot be destroyed. And the reason it cannot be destroyed is because He will not allow it to be destroyed. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. He makes a promise that He's going to take care of His sheep and take care of them forever. There are many uh, enemies of uh, God's people we uh, uh, that seek our destruction, that seek our hurt, but God will not let them win. We think of uh, the life of Joseph, how he came to his own, his own family, his own brothers, and they hated him and condemned him to death and threw him in a grave. But God raised him up uh, to the throne and used him to save his brothers, to save his whole family. Nothing can prevent God from fulfilling His purpose in His people. Think of Job, how Satan attacked his wealth, attacked his children, attacked his health, took away the support of his friends and his wife, and left him with nothing but sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And he was in bitter agony and and misery. God said, I will protect him. And God lifted him up and raised him up and restored him and made things better than they had ever been for Job. Think of Jesus. He had determined enemies who wanted to put him to death, but they're not able to do it. Here they they have the stones in their hand and they're ready to stone him and he just walks away from them because he says, nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own. I take it up again. He's in control. Nobody can do it. And he he compares himself to to his Father in heaven. He says, God does the same thing. My Father who has given them to me is, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus and the Father are guaranteeing that the life they give to their people, to their sheep, is indestructible. I will take care of you. Yes, you have enemies. Psalm 34, verse 15, Many, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them. 
we think that if we're God's people, if we're the righteous people who are righteous by faith, that our life should be a bed of roses. But Jesus says, no, in this world you're going to have tribulation. But fear not. I'm more powerful. I will take care of you. I will deliver you. And he says that he and the Father are one in this regard. That as the Father has you in His hands and no one can snatch you out of His Father's hands, so Jesus is uh, has you in His hands and no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hands. He's guaranteeing that the life He gives is an indestructible life that He gives to His people. Now, with regard to this unity between the, the Father and the Son, we need to, to look at this statement here. I and my Father are one. Verse 30, because... Uh, this has been abused in the history of uh, the trans, uh, interpretation of Scripture to try to drive a wedge between the Father and Jesus and uh, uh, prove that Jesus is is not divine. Now, why is that? Well, forgive me if I get into uh, Greek grammar, but I, I promise you it won't be difficult to understand. But in Greek... The word one that is used here can be written with a neuter ending or with a masculine ending. Now, it's written with a neuter ending. Had it been written with a masculine ending, then it, that's a, a personal ending. It refers to a person. And he, he would be saying, I and the Father are one person. But he's not saying that. And uh, anti-Trinitarians uh, jump on that and say, you see, uh, they're, they're two separate people. And uh, one is God and, and one is a created being. That's what Arius taught, uh, I think, in the 4th century. And uh, Jehovah Witnesses uh, teach that. And Mormons uh, believe that, that Jesus is uh, a created being. And, of course, it's not limited to that. There are uh, thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people who who go to Christian churches who think Jesus is just a great teacher, you know, a moral example. We like, we like what he has to say, especially that golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If everybody would just live that way and follow Jesus' teaching, why, uh, then we'd all uh, be better off. And uh, it doesn't have to be God to, for us to uh, appreciate the fact that he's a good teacher. And so there are lots of people who, who deny it and say, look, he, he used the neuter ending here, so they're, they're not exactly the same. They're different. Well, yes, they are different. They are two persons. And if Jesus had used the masculine ending and said we are one person, he would have contradicted uh, the opening verse of, of John's Gospel that the Word w- was with God. Uh, and it would also make no sense of the Father and I. Why speak about the Father and I if we're the same person? That If they're the same person, then they're not two separate entities, but they are two separate persons. In fact, there are three persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But because he uses the neuter here, then we say, well, then there is expressed here a unity of purpose, a unity of uh, of desire, that, and that's all that there's, there's there, is uh, that they just want to, uh, they both want the same thing. And uh, nobody's higher than God, and God can guarantee it, and, and Jesus is saying, I, I'm, in, I'm with my Father on that, I, I want the same thing. But what Jesus is saying here is, I do the same thing. 
Now, who can make that kind of promise? Who can make a promise that no one will snatch you out of my hands? You know, I'm a father and, and a grandfather, and I, I wish that I could, I could promise my children and grandchildren that, that under my protection, no one will ever hurt them. And uh, no one will ever harm them. No, no bad thing will ever happen to them because I, their father and grandfather, will take care of them. Can I make such a promise? Well, I could make it, but I certainly couldn't keep it. Because I, I'm just a creature. I'm finite. I'm limited in my strength. I can't be everywhere at once. And, and uh, there are other creatures who could gang up against me and, and, and hurt my family. I can't. I can't legitimately make that promise because I am not divine. Only a divine person can make that promise. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's making that promise. And so He's telling us, I too am divine. I'm a separate person, but I'm a separate divine person. And so this is a reference to the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Uh, In another place, in John 5.19, Jesus says, Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Whatever the Father does, that's what I do. I do the same thing. Well, in order for that to be true, Jesus would have to be divine because the Father does a lot of divine things that only divine person can do. And if Jesus does everything the Father does, then He has to be divine as well. And so this is a passage that, that indeed underscores the truth that Jesus is divine. And it is an article of our faith that Jesus is divine, that He is a separate person, but one in divine essence with the Father. There's one divine essence and three persons who are each fully God. And this is one of the texts that supports that because Jesus is promising something that only God can actually promise and do. But bottom line here is not just that here's a text that affirms the divinity of Christ and therefore everybody who denies the divinity of Christ is wrong and we're right. Now the divinity of Christ is upheld here so that you will believe that no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hands. You know, there are lots of trials that we have to undergo. Like... Gold is tested by the fire. So uh, Peter says uh, uh, our faith is uh, put to the test uh, by you having to suffer grief through all kinds of trials. And sometimes the grief and the trial is so great with, that we, we despair and we lose hope. Despair and hopelessness is a killer. Despair and hopelessness is the second leading cause of death in America for people between the age of 10 and 34. Despair and hopelessness that leads to people taking their own life. The second leading cause of death for those between 10 and 34. And the number, the total number of suicides in the United States for every age is two and a half times the number of homicides every year. You know, I debated tonight whether I should mention this situation that, uh, that my son-in-law is facing in, in Michigan. You know, it's a terrible thing to think about. 
It's a parent's worst nightmare, and, and it, we just don't want to even think about it and put it out of mind. But no, we have to face that, that people are that, that hopeless and that full of despair and, and full of other emotions that, that make them think there is no hope. But Jesus is God. And Jesus loves you. He has proven that He loves you. He endured hell for you. If that isn't proof that He loves you, then, then you are indeed blind. Open your eyes and see that because He endured hell for you, He loves you, and now He's promising. There's nothing. Nothing that can hurt you ultimately. Don't fear those who can kill the body. <laughs> Love the Lord Jesus Christ because He will take care of you. He will give you grace in every extreme situation. He is able to save to the uttermost, the author of Hebrews says in the older translation, a beautiful passage that there's no situation that's so terrible that God can't help you if you will but look to Him in faith and believe that indeed Jesus is God, Jesus loves you, and Jesus promises to take care of you. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word. We thank You that Jesus indeed has revealed that He is the Christ of God. And not only revealed that He is the Christ of God, but revealed that He is a divine person, one with You, the Father and Holy Spirit, such that uh, You are one God. We thank You, Father, for this truth and pray that that truth may indeed be received in our hearts so that we will believe His promises so that we will hear His call to repent and believe and obey that call to repent and believe and, and respond to Him in faith and continue to trust Him through all of life's trials and tribulations. We pray that You would work faith in our hearts and strengthen that faith day by day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.